Good morning. I'm just going to steal one of these music stands real fast. We have a um, we have a lot of musical talent here at our church. I'm always just amazed by how many people can jump in and lead worship on any given Sunday morning. So thank you, Tony, for leading us today. I want to introduce you to a guy by the name of Charles Foster. It's a name that you may or may not have heard of before, but he wrote a book called Becoming a Beast. And he's an interesting guy. He's a veterinarian, a kind of a renowned veterinarian. He's a practicing attorney, and he's a professor at Oxford University, <coughs> which kind of made uh, this all the more strange as I started learning about him. Because he has this peculiar habit. He has spent about six weeks of his life living as a badger. Yeah, you heard me right. Living as a badger. And he took that time. He actually brought his son along with him. He's got an eight-year-old son. And the two of them would go and live uh, in a 15-foot hole uh, that's been burrowed out at a friend's farm. And they'll live in that hole. And while he's living in that hole, uh, sometimes he'll blindfold himself because badgers have really uh, bad eyesight. And um, he'll walk real close to the ground. So during that time, he'll stay on all fours like a, like a badger was. As a matter of fact, there's a picture of him here getting all badgered up. And he'll live like that for a while. And not only will he do that, but see, you know, a badger's diet consists primarily of earthworms. So yeah, he'll even eat earthworms while he's living as a badger uh, in that hole in the ground. And yes, he's an Oxford University professor. As a matter of fact, he's won awards for this book that he's written on living as a beast. And as strange as this sounds, and I hope it does sound strange to you, as strange as that sounds, what is even more repugnant than what this man has done in living as a badger is Christ leaving the glory of heaven to come down and live on a fallen earth, not for six weeks, but for 33 years. See, this is what Jesus has done for us. He came and he lived as a man in a fallen world. He went through the pain that we go through. He went through the grief that we've gone through. Uh, he encountered a lot of the difficulties that we encounter right here on earth, leaving the glory of heaven. And the really challenging part of this, and this is, this is tough. We, we get to Philippians and Paul gives us this command in, in chapter 2, verse 5. He says to have this mind of Christ. Wow. To have this attitude of Christ that Christ had in coming down to live like one of us. Now, how in the world are we going to do that? That's going to be our subject today. That's what we're going to talk about in this next section of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, and we'll be in verses 5 through 11. 
And by the way, if you were going to look at the Bible as a, as a mountain range, it has been said that the passage that we're going to be looking at today would be one of the peaks. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You may be seated. We're continuing on the book of Philippians, and today uh, we're going to work through this passage. And it's divided up into two sections. The first part, verses 5 through 8, is about the humiliation of Christ. And as we go through verses 5 through 8, I'm going to make two observations. And I'm also going to talk about two ways in that section to imitate the mind of Christ. And then in the next part, it's the exaltation of Christ. And I'm going to make one observation and then one more way to imitate the mind of Christ. So we'll get three ways to imitate the mind of Christ in the manner that Paul is talking about here in Philippians chapter 2. It's got this very high command as we jump into this passage, right there at the very beginning. He says, we're told, he says we're to have the mind of Christ. And do you realize that in these next verses, we are getting a peek into the mind of God himself? How he thinks, how did Christ see himself? as he was entering into humanity, leaving the glory of heaven. Last week we spent some time talking about how do we rid ourselves of selfish ambition that can cause divisions within the body of Christ. Well, today we're looking at the ultimate example of how to not have selfish ambition, how to humbly consider others better than yourselves, and we're seeing it in the example of Christ himself. So Paul's going to, fully in, he's going to fully illustrate this by explaining to us the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And he said we're called to have this same mind. So that's all encompassed there uh, in verse 5. Having this mind among ourselves, which is, in Christ, which is ours in Christ Jesus. And then we see verse 6. And there's some phrases here that we need to grapple with. Um, first, he says, though he existed in the form of God. Now, these phrases are pregnant with meaning. So we don't want to just skirt past these. Because in that, we see that Christ existed before he became human. He has always been. Now, he uses this word form, and this is something that the church has grappled with for quite a while, actually. Um, but it, it really reached a zenith 
in the year 325. So what do I mean by that? So they were struggling for a long time as far as what it meant then that Christ was born. Uh, and in the early church, it all started in Jerusalem. Christ came and came to Jerusalem. Then the church scattered. It went to Rome, it went to Constantinople, and it came down to Alexandria, Egypt. So in those three places, uh, Christians were living out the Christian life. There was severe persecution going on until the time of the emperor Constantine. And he had a dream that if he put pictures of crosses on his men's shields before he went into battle one day, that he would win the battle. Well, he did that. And after doing that, he, he, well, he won the battle. And then he decided, well, we are going to embrace Christianity in the Roman Empire. So persecution began to die down under the emperor Constantine. And because it died down, some real thought began being put into the scriptures and what they meant. And the churches started growing. And there was one large church in Alexandria, Egypt, that was led by a guy named Arius. Arius had become of a mind that Christ became man and also came into being at the time of his birth. In other words, Arius was teaching that Christ had not always been. And that didn't sit well with one guy. Actually, a, a multitude of men, but one man spoke out. A guy who was nicknamed the Black Dwarf. How would you like to have that as a nickname? His name was Athanasius, and he was tenacious. <laughs> I might make a little song out of it. I'm not going to. So, yeah, Athanasius, this guy, was one of the very first monks. He was a very young man, and he decided that he needed to take on Arius. Now, Constantine was aware that these Christians in his kingdom weren't getting along, so he said, I'm going to bring you all together. I'm going to lock you in a room, and you're going to cash this thing out. And they did that. It became known as something called the Council of Nicaea. And all of the Christian leaders got together. And they decided in that room that Jesus had always been. As a matter of fact, when it came down to it, Arius and his helper were the only ones who believed that Jesus had not always been. Something else that, uh, that happened at that, that meeting, a man got so angry with Arius that he actually ran up and slapped him. A guy by the name of St. Nicholas. Did you know that? That Santa Claus was at the Council of Nicaea and smacked Arius. True story. So he came up, he smacked Arius. That was deemed heresy from then on. And they came up with some language. They said, we don't want to have to go back and fight this battle again. So they came up with something called the Nicene Creed. And I actually want to go through part of that creed this morning. I just want to read through it. This is what was written at the end of that meeting to gather up what everybody believed was true doctrinally about Jesus. And this is what they wrote. They said, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of things visible and invisible. Then they turned their attention to Christ. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the begotten of God the Father, the only begotten that is of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten and not made, of the very same nature of the Father, by whom all things came into being, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, who for us humanity and for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate, was made human, was born perfectly of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit, by whom he took body, soul, and mind, and everything that is in man, truly and not in semblance, 
He suffered, was crucified, was buried, rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven with the same body, and sat at the right hand of the Father. He is to come with the same body and with the glory of the Father to judge the living and the dead. Of his kingdom there is no end. This is one of the best, if not the best, articulations of what a Christian believes. Now, all of this is based on the Bible. And if you can come up with something better, I would challenge you to do so. It's just that in about 1,700 years, no one has better expressed this than the Nicene Creed. By the way, this is something that distinguishes what we believe from what Mormons believe. Uh, if you're familiar with Mormonism, they do not believe in the eternality of Jesus Christ. They believe, and the phrase is, that he was the firstborn spirit child of the Father. Uh, they believe that Jesus had a starting point, that there was a time when Jesus was not. So it's a different Jesus uh, than the Jesus that we believe in. Two different Christs. It then goes on in verse 6. Um, it goes on in verse 6 that he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. Now, what does that mean? Because I always struggle with this verse. Because when you and I talk about grasping something, it's usually something that's like just out of reach. But that's not what this verse is saying. At first glance, it, it seems that way. But actually, uh, you could read this phrase a little differently. And I've got to jump back ahead here. Um, you could read it like this, that Christ did not regard equality with God as something to be held onto for his own advantage. In other words, Christ was willing to let go of that part of him that was like the Father in that he took on this form of a servant. He has total equality with God. And yet... It was veiled, his, his glory and his holiness. And it goes on in, uh, more in verse 7. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And again, it raises this question. Well, what was it that Christ emptied himself of? Because at some point, well, if he loses some part of his divinity, then he ceases to be God. Well, Paul's making it clear he lost none of his deity, he lost none of his divinity in this act of emptying himself. But, notice, it doesn't say anything about him emptying himself of something. In other words, he didn't lose anything by emptying himself. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave or a servant. This is how he emptied himself. Another way of saying it is that he made himself of no reputation. That he made himself nothing. And then what did he become? He became a servant. You could even translate that, he became a slave. And as, as difficult as it may be to get your mind around that, go back to that man who was trying to become a badger. And as, again, as repugnant as that was, this is more repugnant. And until we get to heaven, until we see the glory of it, I don't know that we're ever fully going to be able to understand what it was Christ has done here. N.T. Wright uh, put it this way. He said, the real humiliation of the incarnation, the cross, 
is that one who was himself God and who never during the whole process stopped being God could embrace such a vocation as a servant to all. So then verse 7 is a, it's a big verse. Christ became a servant. It says he was born in the likeness of men. Now that means to say he was similar to man. He had everything that a man has. Body, soul, mind, the uh, Nicene Creed was very explicit in that. And yet he was different because he was perfect and sinless in every way. So he wasn't fully like a man. He was the God-man. Similar but different. And then we get to verse 8. And we see the depths of humility that Christ reaches it says, in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now notice that last phrase, obedient to death, even death on a cross. You know, the cross was a humiliation in and of itself. The cross was the, the means of execution reserved for the worst of the worst, for murderers. Um, and before you would die on the cross, you would have to drag that cross all around that city as one last statement to say that I was wrong and Rome was right. That's what Christ endured, the pain of it, the humiliation of it. So now I want to make two observations on this section that we just looked at. Uh, the first is that while Christ was on earth, he showed incredible restraint incredible, infinite even, restraint. Can you imagine enduring everything that he endured all the time with less than the snap of your fingers being able to stop all of it? I'm always moved whenever they have those documentaries about what Navy SEALs go through whenever they're enduring Hell Week and they have to go through all that training and all that running and all that, the cold ocean swimming out in it. And the whole time, they can run up on the beach if they want to. And all they got to do is ring a bell, and it's all over. But they're compelled. I think I would last about 10 to 15 seconds before I rang that bell. Maybe. Maybe not quite that long. Christ could not only have rung the bell. He could have, he could have eliminated our enemies. He could have eliminated all of his enemies. And he showed incredible restraint in that he never, ever did any of that. He restrained himself. So what does that mean for you and I? Have the mind of Christ first by imitating his restraint. We want to imitate his restraint. It's something that we have to practice every single day. We have opportunities to not restrain ourselves. And to restrain ourselves mean to, it means to keep ourselves under self-control, our emotions under self-control, our mouths under self-control. And it's something maybe you don't fully appreciate until... Restraints are removed. I was reminded when it reminded um, the other day, I was thinking about when I had my wisdom teeth pulled out. And the only thing I can really remember is uh, laying in that, that chair, and they had the lights on, there was a small team around me. And I remember the, the oral surgeon said, Okay, Chad, we're going to give you a little attitude adjustment. And I remember they put this mask on. And then I remember looking over, there was a lady standing right at my feet. And there was a song playing. It was Bob Seger's song, I Like That Old Time Rock and Roll. And she started, she was looking at me, then she kind of like started dancing to it. I don't know what happened. 
But my dad said he could hear me cackling out in the lobby once I got under all that. I'm thankful I don't remember that part of it, to be quite honest. I don't know what I may have said. And you've seen those videos of, of these horrible parents that take videos of their kids when they're coming off the gas and the things they say and the things they do. I'm thankful there were no cameras at that time. But that's what it's like when restraint is removed. And we just say whatever's said. And we just do whatever's done. And it's scary to think that that would be the norm. That if we didn't practice restraint, what kind of things would we do? It's hard enough to keep yourself from putting certain things out on social media. I've made that mistake. To where my wife had to come and say, Chad, you should really think about what you just put out on there. We've got to control our emotions. We have to practice restraint. Chuck Swindoll had a similar experience that I did um, whenever he had to, to go to the dentist and have some work done. And in his book, Man to Man, uh, he said this about restraint. He said, removing restraint from your life may seem like an exciting adventure, but in, it inevitably leads to tragedy. It's a lot like removing the brakes from your car. It may be daring and filled with thrills for a while, but injury is certain. Take away the brakes and your life, like your car, is transformed into an unguided missile destined for disaster. There's one other thought I'd like to share. He actually came up with a, Swindoll came with a short poem um, about the experience that he shared like mine at the dentist. He said, when medicine is needed to dull the pain you're in, your actions may be silly, yet really, they really are not sin. But when you willfully lose control and set restraint aside, your actions then are sinful and pain is multiplied. You know, sin will always complicate your life. It may in the moment seem like a good time. It may in the moment even feel like the right thing to do. But in the end, sin will always complicate. So we have to imitate the mind of Christ by first having restraint, showing restraint. The second observation I want to make is that Christ completely relinquished, that should say relinquished, that to which he was entitled. He completely relinquished his entitlements. You know, Christ is the only one that really, truly was entitled. He was the Son of God. He was King of kings, Lord of lords, uh, entitled to the glory of heaven. And yet he chose to give up all of his desires, his comforts, his pleasures for our eternal good. He laid down his entitlements for us. So then, secondly, we can have the mind of Christ by releasing our entitlements. Maybe I should say by releasing our perceived entitlements. This is hard to do uh, in our culture because, frankly, we are all completely brainwashed by the culture that we are living in. And if you don't believe me in this, uh, there was a study that was done. They actually did it. It was done by the, uh, the Pediatrics and Adolescent, uh, the Department of Pediatrics and Adolescent Medicine. And they did this taste test with kids on chicken nuggets. And some of the chicken nuggets were wrapped up in a McDonald's wrapper, and some of the chicken nuggets were not. And they put the chicken nuggets in front of the kids. And every single time, even though these were identical chicken nuggets, every single time those kids said that the nuggets in the McDonald's wrapper tasted better. 
And they also did it with carrots and apples. And every time the kids said the, the carrots and the apples that came out of that McDonald's chicken container tasted better. Now, why is that? These things have been branded to tell these kids this is what's better. If you don't think you're being brainwashed by a culture that tells you that you can have it your way, that you're entitled to this and that, and every home improvement show that tells us that we are entitled to live in a home that isn't dated, man, I feel like everything in my house has to be updated. I'm entitled to this and to know how to do it myself, which doesn't always work out well. It could be any number of things that we feel entitled to, and they're not necessarily bad things. For a long time, my wife and I felt entitled to children. By the grace of God, we were able to have one. He was a long time coming. I felt for a long time I was entitled to a spouse. A spouse is a blessing. We may feel entitled to a higher paying job. There's a key to finding the presence of entitlement, and it's by getting into our hearts. It's by looking into our emotions and asking ourselves a few questions. Actually, four questions. This, the, um, this came off the Desiring God website. A woman named Chelsea Sobolik, she came up with four questions I thought were very insightful in determining, do I have a sense of entitlement? And one question we can ask ourselves, oh, well, one question we can ask ourselves, uh, in what areas of my life am I discontent? If you find yourself discontent, where is it? Is it in a particular area? Secondly, uh, why am I feeling so disappointed right now? Is it because I believe I'm entitled to something? Um, did I hear about a friend getting a better job? Third, what do I think I need in order to live an abundant life? Do you feel like you're in this constant state of more? I need more. I've got to have more. And then last, and this is maybe the most sobering, how am I comparing my life to someone else's life? Social media can be absolutely deadly in this last question. I can get on social media, and I can look at a guy that maybe I went to high school with or was in college with, and think, well, why does he have that? I remember he was sleeping in the back of the class. And he's got something that I should Why don't I have that? Whatever it is. It could be anything. You know, the, the more that you and I feel entitled, the more restless we're going to be. It's going to be very difficult to find rest if you're feeling entitled to more things. Uh, at the same, on, on the same side, um, the more uh, we see life with a sense of gratitude and thankfulness for just what we have, the more content we're going to be. But this entitlement deal can be deadly, and it's not the example that we have in Christ. So then how do we uh, begin to imitate Christ? We do it by restraining ourselves and then releasing a sense of entitlement. That's the second one. Let's move on now. Uh, I want to pick it up in verses 9 through 11. And in this second section, we see the exaltation of Christ. 
And picking up verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed him on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in this last section, um, one of the first things to take note of in these verses is that first, God the Father is doing the action. Up until this time, it was Christ that was doing these things. But now God the Father is doing the action. He's exalting, he's bestowing in these verses as opposed to what Christ has been doing. And then what will happen? And it says there in verse 9, Therefore, Christ has been highly exalted. Now this speaks to his resurrection. This speaks to his glory. This speaks to his, um, his ascension into heaven, this exaltation. This is an answer to his prayer in John chapter 17, verse 5, when he says, And now, Father, glorify me at your side with the glory I had with you before the world was created. The Father is answering his prayer. And the verse says that he'll receive a name that is above every name. That is to say that no one is ever going to have more honor than Christ. And then in verses 10 and 11, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ's sovereignty and authority are going to reign absolutely supreme in all things. The Bible Knowledge Commentary states it this way, that no intelligent being, whether angels and saints in heaven, people living on the earth, or Satan, demons, and the unsaved in hell, in all of God's universe will escape. All will bow either willingly or they will be made to do so. Now, I realize that I just said something that is incredibly uh, politically incorrect. At the same time, I believe it to be absolutely true. And if you're here this morning and you're unsure if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, I'm asking you don't wait. Don't wait until this time to put your faith in Christ. You can do that today. You can do that right now in the seat that you're setting in. If you believe all what Scripture says in these verses to be true about Jesus Christ, if you understand that you're a sinner in need of saving, that Jesus became man, he put on humanity, he came to earth, and he took all of the punishment for sin on himself, all of it, and we could receive that free gift of salvation simply by trusting in what it was Jesus did for us, that he died for us, that he took on all the punishment for us. It's by trusting in what Jesus did that you and I can have salvation. So that when this day comes, we will be the people in heaven together praising Jesus. You have that available to you right now. Don't wait. So my last observation from this set of verses is that Christ patiently waited until he was resurrected, until he was exalted. He went through 33 years of the pain of this life and waited till the Father exalted him. What does that mean for us? Finally, 
We can have the mind of Christ by showing restraint, releasing entitlement, and finally, also awaiting our resurrection. You know, this is when everything is going to be made right. This is when you get the big house. It's when we get to heaven. I don't care how great your house is now, it's not going to be like the one you're going to have in heaven. Christ has been preparing this place for us a long, long time. Everything on earth will disappoint in comparison to what we're going to get in heaven. And we're patiently awaiting that right now. We have to patiently await this coming of Christ. I know we want the justice right now. We want everything to be made right, right now. And as much as I love and will perpetuate the idea of human rights, things are not going to be made right, right now. I don't care how great our politicians are. I don't care how great our administration is. I don't care how great who may be the next president, king, whomever to come along. Things are not going to be set right until Christ gets back. And until then, we have to patiently wait until we're resurrected. Now, when we die, yes, we get to be with Christ if we've trusted in Him, and that's better than it is right now. But my ultimate hope is in the resurrection. When I get my body back, that's what we're patiently waiting on. So, how do we have this mind of Christ? How do we imitate the mind of Christ? These three things, showing restraint, releasing entitlement, and then awaiting resurrection. Last week, I introduced a guy to some of you. Some of you had heard of him before, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a Lutheran priest. And he was involved in an assassination attempt against Hitler. Only it was thwarted, and he was caught, and he was put in prison in 1943. And as he was in prison, and he was awaiting his sentence, as he was awaiting that day that they would come knocking and taking him out of his cell to take him to his execution, he had some thoughts, and he wrote this to a friend while he was waiting. He said, A prison cell in which one waits, hopes, does various unessential things, and is completely dependent on the fact... Actually, I've got this on a slide. And is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside is not a bad picture of Christ's second coming. That's what you and I are doing right now. We are patiently waiting for Christ to come and to unlock that door from the outside so that we can enter into glory with him. Please pray with me. Lord, we're waiting. God, we're in the middle of creation that is groaning for you. In the meantime, Lord Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us to imitate you. Lord, there were no end to the depths of the humility that you have shown us. And you're willing to leave the infinite glory and beauty and majesty with color and music that we can't begin to comprehend there in the presence of your Father to come to earth and live out those 33 years in a supreme act of love towards us compelled by the love that you have for us. Help us to do the same, Lord Jesus. Give us the strength daily to walk with you, to show restraint, to not have a feeling of entitlement, and just to wait patiently on you. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.
Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Thank you all for being here. You're dismissed.